Welcome to the Radically Christian Crosstalk Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. I'm your host, Wes McAdams. Join me and my co-hosts, Sam Dominguez and James Sumners, as we continue a series in which we're discussing passages of Scripture that are so much more than just children's Bible stories. We're going to attempt to rescue these passages of Scripture from the children's corner where they have unfortunately been relegated. On today's show, we discuss the biblical account of Noah. The Crosstalk Podcast is not a sermon, a Bible class, or even a formal Bible study. It's simply a spiritual conversation among friends that we hope you'll find edifying and that will encourage you to have these types of spiritual conversations with people in your life. And now let's jump right into that conversation. Well, I think first, to start off, since we're talking about things that are typically known as children's stories, it's, to me, kind of ironic that we that we treat this one as a children's story. I mean, a story that is primarily about the wrath of God in destroying millions of people from the face of the earth in a flood. Um, and obviously, there's the goodness of God and the mercy of God seen in it as well. But, I mean, if you had to pick a category, is this more about God's grace and mercy or about his wrath and judgment? I mean, we'd have to go with the wrath and judgment side of things. Um, and so... Um, it's it's kind of interesting that we have almost entirely put this in the category of children's Bible stories, and rarely, if ever, talk about it in sermons. And you know, other than just a passing by type of a, a statement, we we rarely preach on it, we rarely teach on it, we rarely uh, think about it and discuss it amongst adults. It's it's really something that has been used to decorate babies' nurseries. You know, and the thing is, the thing that even even further on this, it's crazy because, like, when I start talking, when I start thinking about Noah, I really, like, where do you start with Noah? Where do you start with Noah? Well, you, you go back to, you go back to the, uh, um, to the fall, and you talk about the seed, right? And then you talk about the seed, and then you come to the the genealogies right before Noah, and you hear Lamech, he names Noah, and why does he name Noah? What he what he names him? He says. Because maybe he says he will deliver us from the toil of our hands. And what is the what is the the curse that is received when the, at the fall? Uh, so well, you're now going to have to toil by the sweat of your brow. And this land that was just so easy to cultivate now it's going to have thorns and thistles, and it's going to be difficult. And and here is this, and there's there's a son, and you have a an idea that. But they're still they're still looking for that seed. It's been what maybe uh, 150 or 1500 years or so mm-hmm. um, after after the fall, possibly, and and they're still waiting for this for the seed. And we don't talk about that. It makes me wonder uh, why why we've allowed something of a of a creeping secularism in our children's education to a certain extent, because when, when we start thinking about what do we teach children, we start thinking about the nature of stories that will hold children's interest. And we, we take the, the secular approach of, well, they need to be fantastical stories. They need to have big events. They need to uh, have uh, narrative arcs and moral endings and, and different stuff like that. And especially with, a lot of these Old Testament events, we find them just oh so easily uh, being able to fit into that mold, and we end up kind of yanking them out 
of of their natural habitat, which is in the existence of God's people and the history of God's people and the history of interaction between uh, uh, God's people and Himself, and and we we create these uh, you know Aesop's fables kind of stories around these spectacular events, and we don't really view them as biblical events. We don't really view them as spiritual stories, and we don't see how they tie into the people of God, especially you know with like Noah where it's so early on in the process, and we're not talking about Abraham and his descendants and different things like that. And so it feels almost like it's this standalone event. And we tend to just yank it out of its natural existence in the timeline. And and we never really even really think about how does this fit in with God and his people? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's significant that, and I think sometimes we forget that although this event happened long before Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and even Moses and you know and the the children of Israel and the Exodus and all of these things, that it wasn't written down until then. Um, and, and even if it was written down, then it was you know it was written down and you know passed on in one way or the other. But but Moses, the record that we have is is a record written by Moses, and so. We've got to, I think, take it into that context that that this event, it may have been talked about. I'm sure that it was because we have all of these parallel stories from other cultures that I can't help but believe that that they they were oral traditions passed on from the actual event of Noah that that other cultures maintain some of that because they all sprang from the same they sprang from the same ancestors um, and so they continue to talk about that so so this is an event that was talked about by um, by people from the time that it happened but that Moses wrote it down as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit and so I think we have to put it in that context that that there's a reason why after the Exodus and before entering into the Promised Land, that God wanted Moses to write down this record of, this is where mankind came from, this is how mankind fell, this is how mankind populated the earth after the fall, this is how they fell once again, and how I destroyed mankind except for one family— and and then how and it's interesting that we always end the story of Noah with the rainbow and the and the promise. Well, that's not where the story of Noah ends. It ends with him planting a vineyard and getting drunk. And you know, and so we we're back to where we started from. You know, and so it's almost like it's almost like you know it's this this repetition of things. And so Noah and his family were the first chosen family, so to speak, you know, and, and so God, God blessed and saved this one family, and, and then they were disobedient and unfaithful as well. And, but then through Noah's family, again, came Abraham, and God chose Abraham that he was going to save mankind once again, just as he had saved mankind, mankind in a sense through Noah, he preserved the seed of mankind in Noah, he was going to preserve mankind spiritually through Abraham. And so 
but I think that that it's interesting and important that that's when and why it was written was so that the people going into the promised land would know not only their own history, but the history of mankind and and how they played a significant part in the salvation, not just of Israel, and that's where they, they got they got it wrong, they kept focusing on the wrong things, but they played a significant part in God's plan to preserve mankind through the seed of Abraham. So it, it, it makes perfect sense that God wanted his people to remember this and to know about this event that took place because of the fact that it carried important information about him and his people and his mm-hmm. relationship to his people. And and once again, in an effort to make it a children's story, we tend to yank it out of that context and we, we don't explain any aspect of that, e- even though the event itself it carries huge spiritual implications down to the point where, you know, Peter uh, references them in talking about salvation. Mm-hmm. And and so there's there's so much more to this than just a spectacular event. And there's so much more to it in the understanding of God's character than, than we really want to go into because we just kind of focus on, you know, the, the non-trivial event of the world being destroyed by a flood. <laughs> And yet, in the context of God and his power and his ability, that is somewhat trivial. Mm-hmm. You know, to, for God to wipe out his creation was nothing in concerns of his power. The fact that he chose to then maintain his people uh, because of his love and because of his desire for what he he wanted for his people uh, is, is the bigger aspect of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that very early on, God sets up the prerogative of his judgment. You know, I think that that sometimes in our modern way of thinking, we think, well, who is God to punish? I mean, who is God to judge? Who is God to destroy? I mean, that's kind of unloving. Come on, God, you know, you know, you need to be a little bit more tolerant. You need to be a little bit whatever. I, I wouldn't, I, and I hear people say all the time, well, I wouldn't want to believe in a God that would, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, you know, who who said you get to determine that we as man get to determine what God can and cannot do. And so from the very beginning, we have, we have the fall and then the punishment, and then we have Noah, and, you know, the mankind up to Noah's time, and their fall and their punishment. And so from very early on, God says, listen, salvation and judgment are my prerogative. I can save whom I want, and I can destroy whom I want. I, I, I will put up with people if I want to, and I will destroy people if I want to. And and I don't have to give you any warning. I don't have to give you any grace. I don't have to give you any mercy, but sometimes I will. And sometimes I will put up with people for hundreds of years. And sometimes I'll, and, and, and someday, and you know, Jesus uses the Noah event, the flood, to say, um, you know, this is how judgment is. You know, there's going to be people that are are just going about their lives. They're just doing what they've always done, and judgment comes like that. And that is the prerogative of God, and it always has been, and it always will be. And and we need to we need to tremble before Him, and that's where wisdom begins. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord that says, "You are God, and I am not." And salvation and judgment are your realm, and I will respect that. You know, and like you said earlier, we. We look at this this event and we think, man, look at that, the judgment, the judgment of that. But I'm sure to a certain degree, I'm, I'm sure Noah was like, 
Think of the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. He has saved me. Who am I? Noah was not likely proud of himself that, oh, hey, look at my family. We survived, you goofballs. Mm. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. What he, but just just think about that. He, How humbling it would be to be the last, the last of your kind, so to speak, um, the last of the righteous people of the world, the last of the people of the world, and you're chosen, and you look around and... And I mean, granted, the the Bible tells us that he was, he was, um, he stood apart. He stood out among uh, the people of his time. Were there other people who might have been people who who were still righteous? There may have been, uh, and and even if so, even if they died, I mean, the the, the question comes back here because this, you know, when we talk about. Um, the judgment of God. Sometimes people look at this and want to argue that, well, if God kills all of mankind, He can't be can't be a, a nice God. He can't be a, a a merciful God. He can't be, you know. If but then that's looking at this world as if this world is it. Even if there were men who were righteous at that time, it, just like Noah and his family were saved by the flood from the people, the people, if there were any other righteous people, they were saved by the flood that they didn't have to deal with those people anymore. They got to go to heaven with God. I mean, how, how much, and, and we, we don't, we don't think about, we don't think about the judgment of God as a, as a mercy to those who, who seek him. Um, at the end of the story, at the end of this event, you go through Noah, Noah sacrifices to God. And afterwards there's the promises that you're talking about. And you get the feeling as you read through um, chapter nine, that not only God's making this promise, and it's like He's withholding and holding back a judgment that He that He forced on the people of of Noah's time, and He's holding back the judgment that we deserve. He's holding back the judgment that that the people of our time deserve. He's holding back the pe- the 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 judgment of the time of the people um, uh, of the Israelites as they come out of Egypt. He's, he's holding back. I mean, and, and he waits for the fulfillment of so many things. God is so patient. God is so, so merciful in giving us an opportunity to turn to him. At a certain point, as uh, Abraham's going through the promised land, God says to him, it's not time for you to take the land because the people here, the, the people haven't, haven't gone so far that it's time for them to be destroyed. He's patiently waiting, patiently waiting for people to turn to him. And that, in, in a lot of ways, that's still part of the story of Noah. Is he's patiently developing uh, uh, his people, his chosen people, and choosing them and teaching them how to follow him. And, and it may not look like patience, but sometimes, sometimes patience isn't just sitting back and letting stuff happen. Sometimes patience is intentionally doing something and and trying to build what you're what you're uh, trying to seek which is which is pulling out a chosen people to serve him and to glorify him and to to be what he intended it, it brings to mind second thessalonians and and the justice of god and uh you know we, we need the reminder that uh god's mercy uh toward us uh, demands justice toward the evil. You know, he he is not a loving and merciful God to his people if he does not punish the wicked. Now, that is part and parcel for the entire thing, and and so God's justice and mercy are are hand in hand. 
Uh, he would not be a God of love if he didn't punish the wicked, because that wouldn't be loving to those who were then were righteous before him. But, uh, you know, the world tries to tell us that God's destruction of the earth is is somehow this, this it, it's always couched in terms of wrath, mm-hmm. and it's always God lashing out at his people. And yet when we read it, what does it say? It says that he's grieved in his heart. He's grieved that he made man, and, and it and it he as 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 God speaks to himself, you know, as the Godhead speaks to himself, as as we have it recorded, you know, he says, "I'm I'm ashamed or I I'm saddened that I have made man, and their thoughts are continually wicked. These people whom I made, and and it's the constant refrain that I made these people, I made these people, and they have turned out this way. You know, it it's." Uh, God very much takes ownership of the situation of these are my people. I have made them for something better than this. And I'm grieved to my very core that they have become what they are. Uh, you know, it's, I, I think we, we fail sometimes in our so human and limited perspective to think about how much our behavior hurts God and grieves God and how much of his actions for our betterment and for our punishment are not coming from anger and wrath, but are coming from a wounded and injured heart because he intended so much better for us. And we have rejected him at every turn, every opportunity we're given. And even Noah, who was righteous and, and blameless, it says in his generation, you know, that doesn't mean he was without sin, but it means God wasn't holding that sin against him. He was being held blameless and yet he falls away almost immediately afterward. He, he, he makes the same mistakes again. And, and that just that reveals to us the lie that so many of us will tell, where, well, only if God did this and only if God did that, well, then <laughs> I wouldn't sin, or then I would be obedient, or then this, or then that. And, and it's, it's nonsense. We have people who have just survived the cataclysmic destruction of every last person on earth, save your own family, and all the animals of creation, and you immediately turn around and mess up, and and it, we we fail to recognize that we're ex- that exact same situation, but we grieve God. We grieve God so deeply when we sin and when we do these things, and and it's it's something to be reminded of that this was not an act of just wrath and anger, but but of of heartfelt sorrow and disappointment in what in what was taking place. You know, we we you, we don't really think of God as being like a father, um, like a father who really loves his children, who loves his children so much that he would do anything to take care of them and to uh, provide for them. And, and in a lot of ways, that's what you see here. I mean, he he is the father that I mean, really. And, and to be honest, he's the father that I want to be. And and he's willing to to care for his people so much that 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 this is what ends up happening, and you know throughout especially throughout the the Old Testament and especially in this early part, you hear the phrase "sons of God," "sons of God," "sons of God," and you 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 have to to think about it in, in that way. And we need to always think about it. God's chosen people are his sons, his children, his heirs, the people that he loves. You know. Any one of us who who love our children, um, you know, there's a certain thing that you you, uh, you look at other kids, other people's kids, and they're they're not your children, 
and you don't necessarily because just naturally have that love for them. But God, he created us. He made us from the beginning and he made us his children. Uh, we are his children. We're and and so like you're talking about this this he is a grieved father who desires for his children to do what's right. He doesn't want to see them hurt. He doesn't want to see them do the things that they're doing. He doesn't want to see the, their their uh, evil behaviors. He doesn't want to see all this. And and he has a plan and they're not following the plan and they're ignoring the plan and they're they're going against his plans left and right and left and right. Everywhere you go there are people whose hearts are only on evil all the time. And that that's what that's what he says. He says their hearts were only on evil all the time. And can, can you imagine that? Because he he knows our hearts. And as a father desiring for his children to to live right and do right, and I don't know. They just yeah. It, what what that makes me think of is the fact that most of the time you, when we study this or when we talk about this, uh, I've I've heard so many preachers and so many teachers talk about how well. You know, we we think that things have gotten pretty bad, and we have kind of a despairing attitude about the behavior of the world and the attitudes of the people and whatnot. And we say something along the lines of, well, it's been worse. It's been worse before because God wiped out humanity and whatnot. That we're and, better than they were. Well, yeah, well, at least, yeah. And, and it's usually We've in a We've got a rainbow. That's the difference. We've yeah. got a rainbow. Well, it's it's usually in a mindset of, of staying positive and continuing to work and that type of thing and, and hope hope for people's salvation. And so, so there's a good intention there, but we completely forget about the fact that God swore he wasn't going to do that again until the end. He made that covenant, you know, and we kind of ignore the fact that, no, it's not necessarily that this world is any better. It's not necessarily that we are not as bad as they were. It is simply that God swore he wasn't going to do it again until the end. And so now, now we know. And so could the world be just as bad? It very likely could be. And the only thing holding God back is his promise. Mm -hmm. It's his promise to give us the patience, to give us the time so that as he desires, all man can come to him. Mm -hmm. But we have to come to Jesus. We have to do what God wants us to do to make that happen. And he's being so patient with us. But you know, we, we kind of sometimes just forget about the fact that it's not that the world's any better now. It's simply that God's promised that he's not going to do it again until later. You know, there's an interesting passage, and you kind of referred to it earlier in 1 Peter 3, and it, and it's a hard before he gets to verse twenty one that we talk about all the time the baptism which corresponds to the floodwaters now saves us. Um, before that, he says he he's I mean it's Peter says that Paul's letters are sometimes hard to understand. I think Peter's letters are sometimes hard to understand too. That's probably what Paul wrote back. He's like, yeah, buddy, uh, just kidding. Um, but he says he says Christ also suffered once for sins, for the righteous for the unrighteous, and that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Some translations say, "In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits that are now in prison." So, in other words, that Jesus preached to the spirits that are now in prison. Who, let's see, uh, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So it sounds to me like what Peter is saying is that Jesus preached in the Spirit 
and I would assume through Noah, because Noah is also called a preacher of righteousness, that Jesus preached to the people of Noah's day in the spirit through through uh, Noah and and proclaimed righteousness, but that they refused to hear. And so it's really interesting on so many different levels. One, that uh, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that he spent all of those years as he was building the ark pleading with people and 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 imploring them, you know, as Paul implored people to be reconciled to God, you know, to to come back, to repent. Um, you know, we even have we even have the sacrificial system that was all also already obviously in place. We, you know, even all the way back in the second generation of mankind, we see Cain and Abel offering sacrifices to God. So uh and, and Abel offered a blood sacrifice, and then we find Noah offering sacrifices as soon as he's off the ark. And so, I mean, obviously God set up from the very beginning ways to be reconciled to him. And God is merciful and kind, and he was waiting patiently. And in fact, he was the one imploring through Noah to be reconciled to him. And, and yet people were unwilling. But it's kind of neat, too, as y'all were talking about, you know, applying that to our day, and that God is being patient now, not when, not wanting anyone to perish, and that Jesus, through his Spirit, is imploring the people of our day to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And and now we have this this better revelation in which now the mysteries of God have been revealed to us through the gospel, and we can lay that out for mankind and say, you see? You see what's happened before? You see what is going to happen again? Do you see what God has done for you? Do you see who this God is? Tremble before him, fall upon his mercies, be reconciled to him, he loves you. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to come to repentance and a knowledge of of his salvation. Um, but it's amazing how mankind, as, as a general as a general rule, stay the same and and want to continue in the deeds of the flesh. And going on with you know just what Peter talks about regarding uh, Noah and the flood and and so many many things, it, it, you see a visual representation of what something something that God's doing throughout throughout the the story or of his time throughout the story of of his revealing um the chosen people and the 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 way to bringing about the sea because you have you have the flood um which again it, it sanctifies and cleanses the world and and restores all things to new so they can start over again then you have the israelites going into egypt and coming out and going through the red sea being restored to god being made new again getting to start over again and then after they they throw everything i mean after they mess up so badly um um then then again they go through the water of the jordan and, and into the promised land and then moving and, and and during that time they're also having to do this this whole ritual which kind of uh, of uh, the sacrifices and the process of going into the Holy of Holies and all of this stuff, it's leading to an understanding, a shadow of uh, the shadows of the past leading to us an understanding of the, the, the truth of, of the Christ. And then finally, um, finally baptism comes in and, and you have it all coming together, culminating together. So you have the shadows of the past bringing us to what, what will truly, what, what, what we, we can see the salvation of mankind when the seed arrives, how, how all of this comes together 
and and all leads us to sanctification, the, the starting over, a new a new life that we get to start when we become Christians and are able to follow Him. We we renew ourselves, and then after that, just like Noah, you start over, and what happens? You fall, and what do you do when you fall? Well, you, you get back up and you continue to do to serve God, let Him restore you to righteousness, and and press on and serve Him as best you can. You know the 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 last thing that kind of hangs in my mind about this entire uh, event is is how it compares with our modern uh, kind of faddish take on on God calling us to do work and to do good work for Him, mm-hmm. and that we you know it, it's funny how how right now. It seems like anytime God is calling us to do something, it, it always coincides with the thing we like to do and with the thing that we're passionate about, the thing that we're we're skilled to do or or whatever it ends up being. People won't make it's, fun of you because you're doing it. it it's it's always it's always a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. For God to call you to do some some work. And and yet this this is is probably the the biggest, deepest, hardest reminder. I mean, I mean, aside from maybe of of having to sacrifice your own son. Uh, that a lot of times, if not all the time, that God calls you to do something for Him is going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. It is not going to be easy. It's not even going to be pleasant because you know we we take this description of the people. You know, their mind was was on evil continuously, but it, it's not like they were monsters howling at the door or something. <laughs> you know, it, it's a, this is a spiritual problem that they mm-hmm. had. So. So we don't even tend to think about the fact that Noah had to be grieving for these people. His family had to be his grieving family. for these people. I mean, his sons had wives, right? Yeah. Their families weren't saved. Mm-hmm. Were their families righteous? We don't even know. There had to be, I mean, it, it just makes me wonder why they spent so much time on the ark. You know, God could have just miraculously, well, it's not like it took that long for everything to die, right? Mm-hmm. But they spent a long time on the ark by themselves, where they got to stop and think, and they got to stop and grieve about what had had to happen. They got to share in God's sorrow for the fact that so many people had to die, that that all of creation had to be wiped out because of this spiritual illness that they had. And and when we look at that and we fail to comprehend that when God calls us to righteousness and to good works, it is not going to be something that is glorifying to us. It is going to be something that is glorifying to him, but it might come with great difficulty. It might come with with a commitment of years or a lifetime, mm-hmm. and it might be something that grieves you to your very soul to have to be involved in that. You know, I mean, could you possibly imagine Noah saying, you know what, I'd rather die with these people than be asked to have to carry this forward and have this responsibility on my mm-hmm. shoulders, and yet he does it. He does what God asks him to do, not because it brought him honor, not because it brought him glory at the time, and despite the fact that it was extraordinarily difficult, both physically and mentally and spiritually, for him to carry it out. And, and for us to then sit back and and say, well, this is what I need to do because God's calling me to do this thing that I kind of want to do anyway and that I love. you know. And, and I don't mean to be flippant about people who are desiring to work for God, but I, I just think a lot of us fail, and, and my, myself most strongly, fail to recognize that when what God wants us to do is is almost never going to be easy and it's and it's not always going to be pleasant there's going to be a lot of grief involved 
for the fact that people are going to be lost. And you know, you said something earlier. I know we're running out of time, but but you said you said they essentially were grieving with God. You know, we often think about God's punishment as something that God is doing, and and it, and it's true to a certain extent. I mean, as we said before, you know, it's God's prerogative to to uh, to destroy and and when judgment comes. But when we sin, we bring about the judgment upon ourselves. Sin is spiritual suicide. And mankind had destroyed themselves. It's just like it's just like the garden. Eating that piece of fruit was spiritual suicide. They had brought the judgment upon themselves. We can't sit here and say, "Oh God, man, wow, he's rough. Ooh, man, that was bad." You know, no, no. It it it, it was God's creation choosing to go their own way, choosing to destroy themselves through sin, and that's the same thing we do today. If we reject Christ. If we reject the gospel, if we reject walking by faith, walking by the Spirit, then we are choosing a path of self-destruction, and we have no one to blame but ourselves, and God and the righteous grieve for our self-destruction. Whatever actions we do, we reap the rewards of those actions, whether good or bad. We will reap the rewards of the fruit of our life. When you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. I wonder, though, I know that's how we should be. I wonder how much we grieve, mm. you know, for, for those who are lost. Because I think a lot of us kind of, we, 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 we don't consider the fact that Noah had to be grieved by what was going on. And we kind of assume that he wasn't. And then that falls in line with us not really being grieved about the lost among us either. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, when we, when we read the story and the events of Noah's life, I mean, almost, I mean, we, we get amazed by, by the event itself, but just move that aside. And really it's a gut wrenching thing. It should be just a sobering thing that makes us sit back and think about what had to happen to, to lead God to take that action, what it must have been like for Noah to have to follow through on that. It really should be a sobering, sobering thing. A big thanks to my co-host and to Cameron McElyay for his help in the production of this show. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating and review on iTunes so others can be encouraged as well. As always, we want you to know that we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.